Well, we can turn back to the chapter we read there, Genesis chapter 3. I'd like us mainly to think about verses uh, 14 and 15, but also verse 9. In verse 9, there's a question. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And then in 14 and 15, there's the prediction. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we know, God created the world in six six days and then had the seventh day, the first Sabbath. We're not told how long after that this day described in chapter 3 occurred. It may have occurred on the day after that Sabbath, or it may have occurred a week after it, a month after it. Who can say? If it happened a while after that first Sabbath, then it could mean that the visit of God described there in verse 8 of him walking in the garden in the cool of the day, well, that could have been a daily practice. On the other hand, if this day is describing the, the day after the Sabbath, then his... Coming at this particular time, as described in verse verse eight, <clears throat> would be the first time it happened. But since we're not told, we don't know. But anyway, it is of interest, isn't it, that God did come. came in the cool of the day, <clears throat> which I suppose tells us it was in the evening. We're not told at what time in the day Adam and Eve fell. They could have fallen in the morning. And maybe they were spending hours dreading what was going to happen. Or they may have fallen just shortly before God appeared. And 
they wouldn't have had much time to prepare for that. Of course, when we think about their preparation, there's only one word to describe it. And that word is apprehension. The God who was described in the previous two chapters of Genesis is described as a <clears throat> kind, giving, demanding God. He's kind. He's given him everything he need. He's giving. He's promised to provide it. As long as they keep his demands. His demand was a very simple one. Don't eat of one tree. There was nothing special about the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, except that if they touched it, they would discover truth. But they would discover truth in a way that wasn't pleasant. God had revealed himself, the truth about himself, the truth about them in ways that were very easy to understand. But once he warned them, once they ate of the, that particular tree, they would know God in a different way. A God who, will, who had told them what would happen. He had told them that they did touch it, did eat of it, sorry, then they would die. They had never seen death before. So what would have gone through their minds as they thought of that? It was a strange day, wasn't it? This day, the first day of sin in the world. We are used to marking special occasions. We, we have days to remember because of things that happened on. This particular day, the day when everything started to go downhill, it's got things to tell us, doesn't it? Because there's a real sense in which everything that happens today happens because of that day. And we are living with the consequences of that. And we live with the consequences of that, whether we're by ourselves or whether we're with other people. We can't avoid them, these consequences. So I'd like us to think about what God did on this day. Because although it was a day when everything started to go downhill, <laughs> it was also the day when God's rescue plan was revealed. So I want us to think about the 
arrival of God, the appeal of God, and the announcement of God. The arrival of God in the garden. The appeal of God in that searching question. Adam, where are you? And the announcement of God, not to Adam or Eve, but to the serpent. So the arrival of God. We're told there in verse 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We know God is a spirit. So how could they hear him? How could they hear his footsteps? What kind of noise was it that he made as he made progress through the garden? God is invisible. When God God is here, but we didn't hear his footsteps. So how did Adam and Eve hear his footsteps? Well, the answer to that is fairly straightforward. There's a theological word that describes it. It's a theophany. And these kind of things, theophanies, happen frequently in the, in the Old Testament. God came down to speak with Abraham. God looked just like a man. Isaiah went to the temple one day and saw beyond what he normally saw. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up, sitting on a throne. So God took on some creaturely shape. And that's how they heard him walking in the garden. I mean, God, in order to talk to them, would have to do something like that. I wonder what they heard his footsteps like. Was he in a hurry? Was he rushing to confront them with their error? Well, I don't think that's the impression that's given, is it? The impression is given that he's walking kind of slowly. At the same time as he's walking, he's crying. Where are you? It's almost as if he's looking round. All the trees in the garden. As he passes one part of the garden... Where are you? No reply. 
next stage in the garden. Where are you? No reply. The speaking God and the silent humans. They're aware of his presence. We're told that, aren't we? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. The word presence is an intriguing word, isn't it? I mean, what does it signify? I suppose we want to put it this way. Earlier, we saw the picture of a soldier. I suppose it would depend what a soldier was wearing to to indicate to us what his presence was. If we saw him on duty, well, that's a different presence. If we saw him casually dressed. God's presence. What effect did they have, Adam and Eve and the serpent, to God's presence? As we read the chapter, how did we observe their initial reaction? And as far as I can see, their initial reaction was silence. There was Silence caused by trepidation. There was a a sense within their souls of God's sovereignty. They didn't dare to speak until he spoke. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? This almighty God who spoke the universe into existence. This almighty God who has provided this amazing planet in which Adam and Eve were living. This amazing God who had produced this garden as a place of fellowship between them and him. And I think they were very much aware of his sovereignty. It all depends on what he's got to say. They've got nothing to say. In the first part of the chapter, they had plenty to say. But now that God has come, their opinions don't matter anymore, do they? What the serpent thought of God doesn't really matter now, does it? As he twisted things. Even what Eve thought of God doesn't matter now. Because she paid no attention to what God had said. Or did Adam. But what is God going to say now? 
So he's arrived. <clears throat> and that leads us to think of his appeal. First words of God to the fallen human race. Where are you? read a sermon by Spurgeon on this verse and he described what this question was like and since it was much better than anything I could come up with I'm just going to tell you what the five things were that he said what do you think the question means Adam where are you does it mean God didn't know where they were? I mean, when we ask that question, that's what we're asking, isn't it? But that can't be the case with God. God knows everything. So it's not a question of ignorance. But it still is a profound question. Where are you? first thing that Spurgeon said about it was it's an arousing question. It's like calling Adam to waken up. And Eve, of course. Look at what you've done. Look at the mess you've made. Look at the fear in your heart. The trepidation that now fills all your mind. Adam, where are you? Second thing that Spurgeon suggested was it's a question designed to lead to conviction. Conviction of sin. There is a difference between becoming aware of the problems and confessing that we're the cause of the problem. Confession is even more than an acknowledgement that we are the cause of the problem. That kind of response can just be forced out of us by a greater power. But what did God want them to answer to this question? I think he would have wanted them to say, we're sorry we did it. We know that wasn't the answer they gave, of course. The answer they gave was to blame someone else. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent wasn't asked. But anyway question is designed to convict them of their sin. Sometimes I think people are frightened of being convicted of their sin. They imagine it's something like going to a human court. But conviction of sin basically is discovering the truth about yourself. And admitting it. And reacting accordingly. 
and confessing our sin to the one we've offended. And in that grasp of real things, it's reminding us that confession is the path to deliverance. It's not our way to go to a spiritual jail. It's part of the road to spiritual liberty. And until we do confess our sins, we're not going to find that path. It's good to confess our sins. To be convinced, convinced that we are sinners. That's a good thing to know. Spurgeon's third point was it was a call of sadness. God's friend. Where is he? God crying. Where's my friend? If this was day six or day 100 after the creation, whatever day it was, we don't know. And if God had come down in the cool of the day to have fellowship with Adam, here's day one when there's no fellowship. God speaking in sadness in his own world. God concerned Adam you don't want to be with me because that is what Adam and Eve were saying wasn't it we don't want to be with you but God is saying to them where are you Spurgeon is actually quite graphic in this particular detail don't know what you make of this sentence. I pray you, let this mournful, wailing voice of the eternal God come to your ears and move you to repentance. Ever thought like that before, this walk God took in the garden? God with a mournful, wailing voice. Where are you? Fourth point of Spurgeon said it was a seeking voice, seeking question. God on the search. Remember, Jesus said that to the woman of Samaria, didn't he? God seeks people like you to worship him. And here he is in the garden. First response of God to a sinful race. Seeking for them. Adam, where are you? And the fifth point that Spurgeon makes is it's a threatening voice. 
because if they don't stand out from where they're hiding, he will find them. And if he doesn't find them voluntarily, what will happen to them? So these five points, they do tell us quite a bit about God, don't they? When he makes this statement, this question, this appeal, Adam, where are you? And I think it's fair to say but that question echoes down the rest of time. What is God's question to the human race today? Surely it's, where are you? It's a question designed to make us think. But it's also a question designed to make us say, isn't it? Here I am. The question now is not really what Adam and Eve did, but what you and I do. Not even what the person sitting beside you, beside you does, but what you do. Where are you? If I ask that question, you can say to me, none of your business. But you can't say that to God. It is his business. So it was a searching question. Yeah, we can see what their response was. Started blaming one another. And of course, that's what people do in a sense when they're afraid, isn't it? They try to mitigate themselves by saying what some other influence may or may not have been there. No one forced Eve to take the fruit of the tree. No one forced Adam to take it either. They should just have said, we took it rather than trying to blame someone else. We do, it does say something that we may find a bit surprising. Adam says there in verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked. That's a kind of strange connection, isn't it? It means they've lost something, isn't it? Some, something visible. They had lost it. We're not told what it was. Well, they lost. But suggestions have been made. And one suggestion that has been made, and I think it's for what it's worth, I think it might be right. And that is they lost the Covering of glory. That they had been different from all the other creatures. And this covering of glory 
indicated they were made in the image of God. After all, the eternal destiny of God's people is glorification. It's recovery. Recovery from what? From what was lost. Adam and Eve didn't need any clothes in the Garden of Eden. They were covered in glory. What an incredible sight. What an incredible change. Gone from being bright to being dark. And here they are in the presence of the God of brightness. So he comes to those who've lost their glory. What's he going to say? Well, speaks to the serpent. Who is the serpent? Is he one of the two serpents that were made at the start of creation? If he is, what happened to the other one? Who does the Bible say he is? Well, Revelation chapter 12, for example, tells us the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Is this a, an animal? Or is it the devil using an animal? Or is the devil looking like an animal? We're not told. But it is the devil. And the curse that's pronounced upon him is not just for the here and now in the Garden of Eden, which it would be if it was just for that particular serpent. But rather, it's, it's going to go on and on and on. And one day, the serpent's head is going to be crushed. But the crushing didn't happen in the Garden of Eden. And none of the animals in the Garden of Eden survived very long into the future. devil, God's enemy. Adam and Eve, well, God had questions for them. He had no questions for the serpent. Didn't ask him why he did anything. Just promised him he would be humiliated. And we read about the sentence of him being brought down to the dust. Well, it could fit the description of a snake. 
but it also fits the description of kings who were lord and became objects of contempt, who became lifelong spectacles of their loss of power. And here's the devil. And God says to him, you're going to be humiliated. It's almost as if he's saying, isn't it, you think you've won, but you've actually lost. You think you've captured the human race, but you haven't. You think they're all going to perish. But you're wrong. He says there in verse 15, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Don't know what you you take out of that. I would suggests, indicates that Eve would be converted. Doesn't it? It's almost like God saying to the serpent, you tricked her. As Paul says, she was deceived. But I will put enmity between you and the woman. And that's going to have to happen in these lifestyle lifetime, isn't it? So, a hint of the grace of God, even in enmity. And then he says to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. So it means... There's two kinds of people going to be around. Here's a summary of how the human race is going to be divided from now on. Those who follow the ways of the serpent and those who follow the wisdom of the woman in embracing the choice about her promised deliverer. Is that not true still? Has it not always been the way? And then there's this individual who's going to come. Her offspring It's not they shall bruise your head. Or is it? It does say he shall bruise your head. And you will bruise his heel. It's not hard for us to link that to Jesus, is it? When did he crush the serpent? Did it in a little way in the wilderness when he resisted his temptations? 
It was easy for the devil to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a far different prospect when he tried to tempt Jesus in the desert. You can put it this way in the in the garden. The devil won by a mile, as far as Adam and Eve were concerned. In the wilderness, he didn't even get an inch. Jesus bruised him, of course, to some extent, when he liberated people from the fierceness of demonic possession that seemed to be in great abundance when Jesus was here almost indicating some mastering of the enemy army to defeat him. And of course, the real crushing took place at the cross, where extraordinarily the promised champion is crucified in weakness. But in his weakness, he crushes the head of the serpent. And as Paul tells the Colossians that there Jesus took on the powers of darkness and made a show of them openly. Almost in a literal sense his heel has been bruised as he's nailed to the tree that symbolized cursing. And as we know, Paul there takes that picture of what happened at the cross, the, the criminal's crime put above his head. Literally for Jesus, it was, this is the king of the Jews. Paul just takes that practice and says, spiritually above the head of Jesus, indicating what he was paying the penalty for, is our sins. The sins of which the devil could accuse us of, for which the penalty was eternal death. Jesus paid it. There's nothing now above our heads. If we're Christians, we can't be crucified in that manner. There's no penalty demanded of us because Jesus paid it. Apostle John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Not merely to mitigate them, but to destroy them. And it's good for us he did. Look at our champion on the cross. Look beyond the physical agony. See what he's doing. Whoever cried on a cross before, it is finished. I have done it. But he did. cry of triumph. 
But as we close, there's one, one reference to think about. Paul refers to this statement from Genesis chapter 3. He refers to it in Romans 16.20. And remember, that's the list of all the names of his friends in Rome in a few short years. Some of them are going to be lampposts when Nero ties them to poles and sets them on fire because of his mad decision to blame them for the fire that destroyed Rome, which he himself started. Anyway, Paul says to them a few years before that event, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. wonder if the survivors look back to that statement. But then, as we look at it, we can also read with it the passage I mentioned earlier from Revelation chapter 12. How the conquerors are described. Not just the conqueror, Jesus, but also those who conquer with him. The one that Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And as we close, just listen to what John says in Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. So Paul's citing of this verse in Romans 16 is very appropriate. This day, the day when we fell, was the great day when the future triumph of the Son of God was first announced. And therefore we should look back to it, not only as a day of tragedy, but the day of the announcement of triumph, the triumph of grace. But remember, God is asking, where are you? Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you that you come down to our level. That's what always happens. We can't go up to yours. You're the infinite God. Between us and you, there's always a huge gap. A gap that we cannot cross, but rather strangely and amazingly, a gap that you could. And you announced that there in the Garden of Eden was the coming of the champion who not only crossed the gap down into humanity, but went so far across, he went down to the cross. 
Lord, help us on his day to think what the risen Savior went through before his triumph and our triumph could be achieved. So, Lord, remember us and bless us for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll close by singing from Psalm 36, from Sing Psalms, and we'll sing verses 5 to 9. The tune is London New. Your steadfast love is great, O Lord. It reaches heaven high. Your faithfulness is wonderful, extending to the sky. Verses 5 to 9. Your steadfast love is great, O Lord, it reaches heaven high. Your faithfulness is wonderful, extending to the sky. Righteousness is very great, like mountains high and steep. Your justice is like ocean depths, both man and you keep. How precious mention there's tea and coffee in the hall afterwards. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.